All right, welcome in. First ever episode of the Hot Grits podcast that's live, that's being recorded live here at Coach's Corner. I'm Travis Jadon. This is 135, HGP 135. Uh, we're up here at Coach's Corner. Uh, if you're listening to this in the regular audio form, uh, you can always find this video, find the live stream on Coach's Corner's Facebook page or on Hot Grits Podcast Facebook page. Um, you know, and, and I think the reason we're up here kind of is because the TP is being built for the Braves playoff run, which we'll talk about um, in this episode, but also because Coach's Corner is our title sponsor on the Hot Grits podcast. So you can find them at 3016 East Victory Drive. You guys know already to go like their Facebook page and do all that stuff. Uh, if you want to call ahead your order, it's 912-352-2933. Um, also, the rest of the shows on the Coach's Corner Sports Network, the OG, uh, who's in this chair every Wednesday night, Brandon Bain, for Rubbin' and Grubbin', that's the NASCAR show, uh, every Wednesday night, 6 p.m., live on the Coach's Corner Facebook page or archived uh, on the YouTube page there as well, Rubbin' and Grubbin'. Uh, the 19th hole with the Herb Brothers, uh, they'll get mad if I don't announce them here uh, while I'm here, so I'll, I'll do that. That's once a year for the Masters, and you can find that on YouTube, Masters Savannah. Uh, let's see, Carl DeMossi, Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings, local sports. I've been on that the last two weeks. Carl's doing everything uh, local sports-wise, high school sports, youth sports, uh, local college sports, all that kind of stuff. And then who is on first base baseball podcast with Carl and Kyle Lawson. You can find that on Podbean. Also find the links to that on Carl's Facebook page. Ain't nobody gonna this your boy I've always kind of believed in aliens. I don't know if I believe in flying saucers. You might as well just walk up to keep it while he's on his lunch break, you know, cranking a or something. Yeah. Right in the face. Punch a little baby right in. We'll see that. We're almost uh, three minutes into our sports podcast and yet to bring up not one sport. Roll out. So I think we got that out of the way. Again, the TP being built, I think it'll be ready to roll. What, Lawrence, uh, Tuesday, probably Tuesday of this week. Um, so come check them out. You can donate to help save one of our own charities. Um, we'll talk more about that later in the episode as well. Um, we're going to get to the Braves. Their magic number is one. But I want to start with college football. We'll start with Georgia Today, as they barely, barely beat Missouri 26-22, last week after the Kent State game, you know, it was, it was hard to, like, convince yourself to be concerned if you were a Georgia Bulldogs fan because there, there was never a moment in that game it felt like that Georgia was going to lose to Kent State. Um, personally, I felt kind of the same way. Even though Georgia was losing to Missouri, it was 16-6 at halftime. I still never really felt that they were going to lose that game. Now, if that would have happened, if the game against Missouri would have happened 365 days ago, before Georgia had won a national title, before Stetson Bennett had solidified himself as the starting quarterback, then I would be concerned. I think most, of, most Georgia Bulldogs fans would have been concerned. Since they won the whole shebang last year, since they won the Natty, last year with the same head coach, with the same starting quarterback, uh, with the same offensive coordinator. I don't think there's as much of a concern now, but there's still a few things regarding Georgia that leave some things to be desired. They dropped to number two this week in the Associated Press poll. Uh, if you're into that kind of thing, I'm not. I don't think that matters at all. Frankly, it doesn't matter at all. It used to matter a tiny bit in the BCS era, but now it truthfully doesn't matter at all because a new set of rankings comes out in November anyway with the college football playoff committee and they supposedly don't look at the Associated Press poll. So that kind of thing doesn't matter to me as much as the things that were exposed by Missouri uh, on Saturday night was sort of similar to what Kent State did uh, except for it was with SEC athletes on the road in a night game and so I think if you're Georgia, the number one thing to be concerned about is the lack of playmaking at wide receiver. 
And that wasn't like, that wasn't supposed to be a strength coming into the season. It wasn't as if Georgia wanted to be a five-wide team throwing it all over the yard or as if they thought that they, they had a bunch of five stars out wide. They don't have that. I think we all thought they'd have a little more than what they've shown the last two weeks. Lad McConkey, for as good as he's been, you know, the rest of his Georgia career, the last two games uh, have been pretty bad. For Georgia, the leading receivers last week were Brock Bowers and Darnell Washington, two tight ends, against a Missouri team that's not great. In fact, they're pretty bad if you look at the outlying stats. So Brock Bowers did lead the way. Let's see, he had five catches, 66 yards. And then Darnell Washington, three catches for 64 yards. Uh, but Georgia's still, like, they had the advantage in almost every category statistically. The problem was they fumbled it twice, turned it over twice, uh, and they settled for field goals early on. Their defense luckily, you know, was able to hold Missouri to field goals instead of touchdowns. Uh, that fat kicker for Missouri, the thicker kicker, as they call him, if Missouri would have won that game, that guy would have gone down as one of the most hated men in Georgia sports history. You can't be that big and be a kicker. You certainly can't be that demonstrative as a kicker after you, a week after you miss a 19-yard field goal. A week after you miss a 19-yard field goal to Auburn, but he looks like fucking Lou Groza when he plays Georgia. So that sucked. Luckily, it didn't matter as much because Georgia ended up winning the game. I think they outscored Missouri 20-6 to in the second half. Um, so obviously something was said at halftime by Kirby Smart and company to get those guys going. I, I also think that, you know, there are running backs in Georgia's running back room that are good enough. But they've also downgraded to that position, I think, too. After having James Cook and Zamir White last season um, as sort of their one-two combo. Now it's Kendall Milton uh, and basically everyone else. I don't, think, I don't think that that will be a concern moving forward, but Stetson Bennett threw it 44 times against Missouri, and that, to me, is not what you want. If you're a Georgia fan, so Bennett won the game 24-44 for 312 yards, no tutties, no interceptions, so he was all right. I did like that Bennett was pretty tough in the pocket. I think Georgia's offensive line was, was pretty beat up. I mean, not beat up injury-wise. They were out toughed, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, Missouri pushed them around for a while up front on both sides of the ball, really. Um, Jalen Carter's injury defensively was, is tough. And Kirby Smart said today on Monday that uh, he's out for a few weeks. So Georgia next week, or this week, Auburn, at home, 3.30. Then they get Vanderbilt. Then a bye, then Florida. So if you're a Georgia fan, I would eye that Florida game as a return for Jalen Carter. Hopefully, Georgia doesn't need Jalen Carter to beat Auburn. Georgia's favored by 29 points, as I record this, um, on Monday evening. So. If you're a 29-point favorite, you shouldn't need your starting nose tackle to win. I don't think Georgia will need him against Auburn. I don't think they'll need him against Vanderbilt. They might need him against Florida, and so that's sort of the date that I would circle. They will, Georgia will get Javon Bullard back this week, it sounds like. He's the cornerback that got arrested for um, several misdemeanors in Clark County a couple weeks back, uh, drinking under or driving under the influence. I guess drinking under the influence isn't illegal. Driving under the influence, however, frowned upon. Don't do that. So he's suspended, but he'll be back for this week. Um, and that's notable because he's a starting cornerback with, I think, seven tackles, four pass breakups for Georgia. And look, as good as Georgia's secondary has looked at times, it also looked pretty weak at times against Missouri. And there's certainly, Georgia's going to certainly play better passing offenses coming up in the near future. Uh, than Missouri, namely Tennessee, Mississippi State, Florida can throw it a little bit. Um, so all in all with Georgia, my concern level, not as high as it would have been last year, 365 days ago, because it, it's amazing what a national championship will do for a fan. And 
as a Georgia Bulldog fan, I never knew that before last year because I never had a national championship. And I can tell you that I didn't realize that when Georgia won the national championship, that this long afterwards, it would still be impacting the way that I view football games. Because, again, if that happened, if that game against Missouri happened last season, the hedges would have been burning, the sky would have been falling, and I would have been the one doing the burning. I would have been the one bringing the sky down because I, I probably would have been calling for JT Daniels to come in the game. Um, but all of that, none of that happens after you win a national title, after you've proven you can do it. And so there's some complaints, sure. But when you're 5-0 and and you're perfect in the SEC still and you're number two in the country with the most first-place votes in the country, by the way, Alabama fans, Georgia, most first-place votes in the AP poll. I think they're three points behind Bama. When all that's the case, there's really not a lot to worry about unless you're nitpicking. But I do some nitpicking here on the Hot Crits podcast. That's sort of my shtick. Um, so, all right, let's move on. I think that's it for Georgia. I think that's it for Georgia. Um, 30-point favorites, basically, against Auburn. If you're an Auburn fan, that's got to be stunning. Georgia's going for sixth win in a row against Auburn, and I don't know if Georgia will cover. I'm certainly not going to touch that one. But the fact that they're opening as a 30-point favorite is Looney Zooms. And it speaks to how far Georgia's come since Kirby Smartest took over. Um, all right, elsewhere in the state, college football-wise, let's see, Georgia Southern. So Saturday night, it was, we had, let's see, we had Georgia beating Missouri uh, right after the Braves finished off the Mets Saturday night. And then at the same time, basically, Georgia Southern's leading Coastal Carolina, undefeated Coastal Carolina, in Conway, South Carolina. Um, so Georgia Southern started at 7 p.m., Braves 7.20, Georgia 7.30. So I was trio screened. I was three screening the game. That's a hardworking fan, if you ask me. Um, Georgia Southern lost the game to Coastal 34-30. to in, in what was really a heartbreaking loss for them, they came in as 10-point underdogs on the road against arguably the best team in the Sunbelt Conference over the last 24 months, 36 months, maybe App State, outside of App State. But they're leading that game, Georgia Southern is, with two minutes to go. And they end up giving up a touchdown to Grayson McCall and Coastal Carolina's offense, who Grayson McCall is so good. If you haven't seen him for Coastal Carolina, uh, he's worth checking out on his own. The rest of Coastal Carolina is eh. I thought Georgia Southern had the athletes to play with them, and clearly they did. They're winning late. But at the end of the Georgia Southern game, they're up, and I'm going to pull up um, these stats real quick, but they're up. Okay, before, they, before Georgia Southern goes up, let me try to do this off the top of my head. They're losing 28-27 to 27 on the Coastal Carolina three-yard line with three minutes to play. First and goal from the Coastal Carolina three. And they're losing by a point. So at that time, everyone is thinking the same thing. Georgia Southern has two options here. They can go for the touchdown. They can go for the touchdown, kick the extra point, go up six points. But you might leave Coastal Carolina with too much time on the clock. So Georgia Southern decides instead from first and goal from the Coastal Carolina three-yard line they decide to go run, and they got a holding penalty on the first run. Then they go run again after Coastal uses a timeout, and then they go run again. So they started first and goal from the Coastal three-yard line, and they end up kicking a field goal three downs later from the Coastal three-yard line. They netted zero yards. I'm not a math guy, but if you start on the three-yard line and you end on the three-yard line, that tells me that's a net of zero yards. When that's the case, that leaves a lot of room for uh, critique, for criticism of Clay Helton, uh, the head coach of Georgia Southern, and of Brian Ellis, the offensive coordinator. 
for as aggressive as Georgia Southern's been all season in their radical shift from the option offense to an outright air raid offense, it went into a shell and they got ultra, ultra conservative late in the game, decided to kick a field goal. Now you still go up two points. Coastal Carolina still has to go the length of the field, but they did that quickly. They didn't even need the full two minutes to take the lead for good against Georgia Southern. And then, you know, I think Southern had two plays after Coastal scored. Their touchdown in the game was over. So after the game, obviously, people are wondering, should Georgia Southern have gone for the touchdown there at the end instead of the field goal? Obviously, they end up giving up a touchdown to Coastal. So maybe it didn't matter. Maybe it wouldn't have mattered regardless. But there was a clear sign since shift in what Georgia Southern's philosophy was from the first, you know, the first 98% of that football game to what they did the last three minutes. And I think it ultimately cost them. So, you know, if you're Georgia Southern, there's some good to take away from it. There were three lead changes in the last six minutes of that game. And again, Coastal Carolina, a 10 point favorite. So, Obviously, Georgia Southern can hang with the Sunbelt Conference's best. Might not be able to beat them yet, but they can hang. So they're, they're right there knocking on the door. None of that will matter to Georgia Southern fans, nor should it. You know, all they really care about is wins and losses. But from where they were at to start the year, from what the expectations were from people like me, they've obviously exceeded those expectations already, and they've continued to play well, even in the games that they lose, even in the games that they lose, they've played well. Um, let's see. So Alex Rainer's been good. I guess that's good. I have that written down. I don't think it's a good thing when you have the kicker written down as like your number one guy for the game, unless you're Missouri. Unless you're Missouri, then your kicker's your MVP. Um, so there's good to take away from this game if you're Southern, but I think all eyes should be moving forward for them because they are in Atlanta this Saturday afternoon, 2 p.m. at uh, Turner Field, formerly known as Turner Field, home of the Georgia State Panthers. 2 p.m. Georgia Southern versus Georgia State. I think they're number two rival behind App State. So you can't spend time thinking about the Coastal game if you're Georgia Southern. I think they've moved on in that building. Uh, and then by the time this episode comes out, I think most Georgia Southern fans will have moved on and moved their hatred on to Georgia State. A few reminders heading into this game. Please don't refer to Georgia Southern as GSU when they're playing Georgia State, which is GSU. Georgia Southern is GS. Georgia State is GSU. And that's my get off the lawn moment. That's my old guy moment. Uh, it's only three letters, so it shouldn't be too difficult. Uh, unless you're a Georgia State fan. Uh, Three-point underdogs Georgia Southern is this weekend. I don't understand that line at all. I don't understand the hype around Georgia State. Before this season, they were everyone's uh, Cinderella pick. They were everyone's Cinderella pick heading in to the season. Uh, they promptly started 0-4, finally got a win um, over Mighty Army this past week. Now, I support the troops. I support the troops. But Army's pretty bad on the football field. So Georgia State uh, treated it like a Super Bowl win, as they probably should. They've started one and four. And Georgia Southern is still a three-point underdog in Atlanta, where they'll probably be playing in front of a crowd that's 50% Georgia Southern, 50% Georgia State, against a team that's one and four. Uh, so I'm going to sprinkle a little coin on that Georgia Southern game this weekend, uh, you shouldn't. And if you do, don't, don't say it's because of me. Unless Georgia Southern wins, and then I'll take all the credit. So that's revisionist history. It's, that's a fluid take, as I like to call it. Um, all right, so moving on from Georgia Southern, we have Georgia winning against Missouri. Uh, Georgia Southern with still some positive to take away from a loss against Coastal Carolina. There were absolutely no positives to take away from Ted Wright Stadium 
Sunday afternoon when Savannah State did the unthinkable. Savannah State hosted 0-4 Kentucky State, a really, 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 really bad football team, Kentucky State is. I cannot overstate how bad Kentucky State is. The thing is that they're better than Savannah State. All of a the sudden, they're better than Savannah State. 28-13, the Tigers lost on Sunday afternoon at home against a winless last place Kentucky State team. I'm not going to go through like the entire stat line of the Savannah State football game because I doubt most of you out there care about that sort of thing. But the fact that they had the best two-year run in program history, best three-year run, really, if you go back to 2019, 2019, 2020, 2021, not arguable, best three-year run in Savannah State football history. The fact that they've gone from that to opening the season losing to an NAIA team, they got their ass kicked by an NAIA team, 34 to 14. Then they beat Ed Waters, Eddie Waters, also a terrible football team. Um, they hung the banner for that win. They beat Morehouse. Okay, that's their best win of the year. Morehouse has one win on the season. Then they lose to Kentucky State at home. And in that game on Sunday, they had negative 12 rushing yards as a team. Negative 12 rushing yards as a team. They averaged negative 0.5 yards per carry. Again, not a math guy, but that means every time you hand the ball off, you go backwards. That's bad. That's the worst it gets. That's the worst it gets. Not a great start for head coach Aaron Kelton. Um, I'll say this, they have two wins, which is two more wins than that head coach had in his prior two years coaching major college football. Yet, as I've said before, when Savannah State hired Aaron Kelton over Russell DeMossi, a built-in, right there, laid in your lap, perfect coach for your program for consistency coming off of the best three-year run in program history. You had it gifted to you and you fumbled it. You went backwards with it, you hired Aaron Kelton and now you've lost two games to, to teams that would not have even come close to Savannah State in the prior three years. Go back and look what Savannah State did to NAIA teams under Sean Quinn. Go back and look what they did while Russell DeMossi was the offensive coordinator of the team. They were not only winning games against the upper echelon of the SEAC conference, they were beating the hell out of NAIA teams and teams like Kentucky State. For Kentucky State to come in there and win 28-13 to 13 is unthinkable. Savannah State had 140 total yards in a college football game. And you know what you hear from Savannah State? Nothing. The same thing you heard from them when they hired, or the same thing you heard from them when they took six months to make a decision at head coach, when they didn't have a head coach or an assistant staff in place when they start training camp, when players are leaving left and right because they don't know what the hell is going on, just like we don't know what the hell is going on. All of that leads to losses to NAIA teams and it leads to losses to teams like Kentucky State. My, how Savannah State has fallen. But, you know, it's not really that surprising given the track record of that program. This is why we can't have nice things, Savannah State. This is why we can't have nice things. All right, that's it for college football. Uh, before we go to the NFL, I want to tell you guys about John Carr, Realtor, a segment sponsor here on the Hot Grits Podcast. John Carr's been our guy for a long time. Call him today with your real estate needs, whether you're buying, selling, or just want to learn more about the real estate market. John Carr is your guy. 912-228-0916. 912 0916. Call John Carr, text him. Uh, he's from Savannah, Savannah native. He's won Employer of the Month for Seaport Real Estate, I think 1,402 times. Pretty crazy. 
pretty crazy stat there. Uh, so call him, text him today for your real estate needs. Tell him the Hawk Rates podcast sent you, and he will hook it up. The best realtor in town, also one of the top three nicest guys in town. Undisputed fact, folks. John Carr Realtor, 912-228-0916. 912-228-0916. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you can find him there. So thank you to John Carr. All right, uh, moving on to the Falcons. The Falcons are in first place. Let that sink in for a second. Your first place, Atlanta Falcons. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Dark Horse Super Bowl contender. Nah, just kidding. I'm not going to go that far. But they are 2-2 two two after a win over uh, Cleveland Browns, 23-20. to 20. Most of you probably didn't see it because it was blacked out again in the Savannah market. You could have come to Coach's Corner to watch it. You should have come to Coach's Corner to watch it. But regardless of how good or bad the Browns are, I didn't think the Falcons were going to be 2-2 two and two heading into week five of the season. They're at Tampa this week, eight-and-a-half-point underdogs. Uh, go with the Buccaneers on that. Go with the Buccaneers on that one. Bad news coming out of the game for the Falcons. Cordero Patterson goes on the injured reserve. Uh, unlike in years past or in the past in the NFL, Going on the IR doesn't mean you're out for the year. They do hope to get Patterson back. I think in five or six weeks, it might not matter as much. Maybe it does. Maybe the Falcons will still be in the 500 range. Um, but maybe by that time, there are, they still have two wins. They don't worry so much about getting Cordero Patterson back. The Falcons beat the Browns 23-20. to Marcus Mariota completed seven passes. Professional quarterback completing seven passes over four quarters doesn't usually spell a win. Doesn't usually mean you win. So for the Falcons to win that game, I was shocked. Didn't lay any coin on it, but I was shocked that they won. Uh, the Falcons were outgained 403 to 333. They ran 55 plays. The Browns ran 71 plays. So... Again, all these are things that tell me the Falcons don't win that game. So to win a game that you shouldn't win is something the Falcons usually don't do. Realistically, they could be, let's see, 2-2 two and two is 4. They could be 3-1 and one right now if they don't blow a 16-point lead to the Saints in Week 1 to uh, future Hall of Famer Jameis Winston and the New Orleans Saints in Week 1. That's the kind of game that you know and love if you're a Falcons fan. You're not as used to the 23-20 win uh, when your quarterback completes seven passes and your starting running back goes out uh, in the first quarter. I think Patterson ended up with like 35 rushing yards. Uh, the Falcons didn't have anybody rush for more than 70 yards in the game. They didn't do a lot of things right except for in the, in the final score column, uh, which is the only thing that matters. So, uh, again, Tampa next week, it'll be five straight 1 p.m. games starting next week, starting this week against Tampa. And if you're the Falcons, like, I think that's the best time to get teams like Tampa. But also, Tampa had such a rough week last week with Hurricane Ian and their prep. I think that's what caused them to look so bad against, not so bad, but look rough um, against uh, who they play, Kansas City? Kansas City this past week, I think. So I would expect the Buccaneers to look a lot better this upcoming week. Hopefully Marcus Mariota looks a little better in South Florida um, as well this week. I don't think I have any other NFL notes. The Tua thing, I was going to get into the Tua thing with the Dolphins and the concussions thing, but I don't really have a take on that. And I think people that have formulated like real deep takes on what's wrong with the NFL or what's wrong with the people who think something's wrong with the NFL, too much time on your hands. The fact is that the NFL and football in general is not safe. There's nothing they can do to make it safe. All they can do is make it safer. And so you knew after that happened, I said I wasn't going to talk about it. I'm talking about it. You knew after that happened that some poor schlub and the Miami medical staff was getting canned. You absolutely knew it. Because nobody whose name you know is getting fired for that. 
It's going to be a John Doe. It's going to be a John Doe with, a, with an MD in front of his name. And that guy is getting canned immediately. He's probably being paid pretty handsomely for not working right now. Um, but that was a scary, crazy sight, seeing Tua on the ground like that with the fingers, man. The fingers, man. Freaks me out. That freaks me out thinking about that. It's the only sport, the only contact sport where weight class doesn't matter. Tua, like the cutest quarterback in the NFL, little handheld quarterback, just getting slung around by guys that literally eat that much weight in breakfast every morning. Probably. Unconfirmed, but probably. It's my take. Flag football, maybe. Um... All right, that's it for the Falcons. How about them Bravos? Ladies and gentlemen, your first place Atlanta Braves. As I record this, let's see, 4.53 Eastern Standard Time, of course, Monday night. They are one game away. The magic number is one for the Bravos heading into Monday night's series opener with the Fish, with Miami in Florida. Any combination of a Mets loss or a Braves win means the Braves have won their fifth straight National League East division crown. Uh, despite being 10 and a half games back on June 1st, only the Mets, only the Mets could deliver like this, folks. We think we hate the Mets, but really deep down, we kind of love the Mets. I do, I kind of love the Mets. Because every year when you think they can't deliver, when they can't possibly choke more than they already have. Boy, they deliver. They come through in the big time, don't they? Ten and a half games up on June 1st, and I think a 88% chance, according to fan graphs, to win the National League East. And then, oh no. Oh no, they choked. But really, was it a choke? Or did the Braves just catch fire on June 1st after that mythical the greatest team meeting in professional sports history organized by Brian Snicker. I'm declaring that right now. Greatest team meeting, professional sports history, June 1st, Brian Snicker and the Atlanta Bravos. From that time, and I know you've heard all these stats by now, but I gotta fill up some airspace. I'm gonna, I'm gonna repeat them anyway. From June 1st, 108 games, the Braves went 76 and 32. That's a 704 clip. During that same time, one less game for the Mets. They went 63 and 44. So they were 19 games over 500, the Mets were. This wasn't your typical Mets collapse. It was a collapse. Let's make no mistakes about that. It was a collapse, and we are grateful for it. But the Braves took that thing from them. They took it from the Mets, from their $44 million man, Max Scherzer. That guy's a nutbag. And the Braves own him of late. Dansby Swanson took DeGrom deep, took Scherzer deep, then took Bassett deep. Have a seat. Olsen and Swanson homered in each game in a three-game series for the Braves. It's the first time that that's happened for the Braves since 1961. 1961, Eddie Matthews was one of the guys. I think this is right. If not, I'll edit this out. I think Eddie Matthews was one of the guys in 1961 to hit a home run in three games in a three-game series, one in each game. I don't remember who the other guy was, but Matt Olson and Dansby Swanson did it as teammates for the first time since 1961. Coincidentally, also the last time the Mets didn't blow a National League East in 1961. That's a made-up stat. Don't fact-check that. But so the Braves, like, legit took this from the Mets. A hundred games now that they've won. They're 159, again, with three games to play. It's their first 100-win season since 2003. So I'm starting to wonder, like, this team... And I don't even know that this is a wonder anymore. This team is definitely better than last year's Braves team. Remember how we were feeling going into last year's playoffs as the Braves, like as Braves fans? You were thinking, if everything goes right, 
if Will Smith doesn't blow up in our face, uh, if Pablo Sandoval doesn't come back on the roster somehow, if all these things go their way, then maybe they got a shot. All those things did go their way. They caught fire and they won the, the World Series. But this year, they're not like heading into this thing needing things to break their way. They are rolling into the playoffs. Now, of course, as I say this, let's get this out and let's just get this out in the open so we don't have uh, let's anti-jinx this thing. Let's talk about it so as not to jinx it. The Mets collapsed, lost a 10 and a half game lead. If the Braves somehow get swept in Miami and the Mets sweep the Nationals, which is not out of the realm of possibility for the Mets, the Nationals are terrible. If that happens, that would be a way bigger collapse in a 72 hour span than what the Mets have done over three months. But that can't happen, right? If the Braves lose, say, the first two games of the series, and then the Mets win the first two games of their series in Washington, I think Snickers got to have a team meeting, right? We got to have a team meeting before that final game, before 162. Have to. That ain't going to happen. I think the Braves are going to win the East. They're going to start Tuesday, let's see, a week from Tuesday. So they'll start October 11th in the National League Division Series. Ideally, they clinch tonight, Monday night. Ideally, they do that if the Mets lose or they win tonight. That'll happen. But I don't think it matters as much in this new playoff format, and I'll tell you why. This is the first time that a team is going to have a built-in buy in Major League Baseball history. So there's no precedent for how this is going to be handled. How will the Braves handle being off Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday before they play their series, the National League Division Series? I don't know, because there's no precedent because it's never happened before. But that means that clinching on Monday against Miami, this is part of going live here, part of it. We got trucks backing up, got beautiful people everywhere. If the Braves take care of business Monday, it's, that's good, but they don't have to because they still have time regardless after Wednesday to set the rotation how they like it, to tweak it just so, to get Spencer Strider healthy, hopefully, um, and to get their rotation lined up how they want it, regardless of if it takes them to Wednesday to win the East. Now, in the back of my mind, I kind of want it to come on a Mets loss. I want the Braves to win, obviously, but just, just to finish this thing off right, it would be so sweet if the Braves won, but the Mets lost five minutes before. You know? Just so that way, the clincher would come on a Mets loss and not a Braves win. And the Mets are definitely capable of pulling that off. You would think no, but they are. Don't put it past them. Moving into the playoffs, I think like there's a few questions for Braves fans. The roster is going to be something we'll have to monitor. They're not going to have to turn that roster in until Monday, until the 10th. Um, so they'll get to see who wins out of that. Let's see, Cardinals, probably Cardinals, Phillies? Cardinals, Phillies, I think, w would be how our lineup. The winner of that series would play in Atlanta Tuesday. Um, I thought it was interesting. And again, I got to say these kind of things out loud just to anti-jinx it. The last time that there was a new playoff format in Major League Baseball, the Braves were one of the teams in that new format in the single game wildcard series. That came against the Cardinals, who the Braves very well might play in the first round of this year's new format. You'll remember the infamous infield fly rule that the Cardinals beat the Braves on that year. The Braves were like 10 games better in the standings than the Cardinals were that season. They lost the one-game playoff in the first-ever single-game wild-card game. Now they might have to play the Cardinals again in the first-ever second round in LDS, the first-ever time that a team is coming off a bye. So that's interesting. I, I hate playing the Cardinals. 
any time of year. I don't like playing them in October. But it sure beats the hell out of having to play the Padres than the Dodgers. Now, if the Braves win the division, the Mets and Dodgers will have to face each other in that NLDS. One of them are going home. As a longtime baseball guy, I know this. When two teams match up in a best of five series, only one can win. That's a fact. So either the Mets or Dodgers are going home before the Braves ever had to see them. So if you get through the Cardinals, and let's just say it's the Dodgers, the Braves pitching staff can match up with the Dodgers pitching staff over six or seven games. I think the one place you wouldn't want to see the Dodgers is in a best of five. You don't want a short series with Los Angeles, and you don't want a short series with the Mets either. You don't want to have to face the Grom and Scherzer and then be one game away from elimination. So this is best case scenario for the Braves. As far as the roster goes, 26 men. You figure for a best of five series, um, you would need 13 pitchers minimum, but they could elect to go 14 pitchers, 12 batters. I think it would come down to a decision for Brian Snicker and Alex Anthopoulos, who I trust fully to make these decisions. Um, it's going to come down to Heredia. Do you value Heredia off the bench as a pinch runner, as a, um, as a late-inning defensive replacement? Do you value that over, say, Jake Odorizzi as a fourth starter, over Kyle Muller as a seventh reliever, over Jackson Stevens maybe? That's the kind of decision that's going to have to be made. I do know this. I've told you guys all season, long-time listeners will know this. I've been an Orlando Arcia guy all season. Have been, since day one. I've said he's great. My take has been confirmed. He looks like, and it isn't really a debate anymore, Brian Snicker's lineup over the last week has shown you who he values in certain spots. It's going to be Orlando Arcia at second base over Von Grissom. Not at, maybe not every game, certainly not for all nine innings maybe, but that's who Snit likes right now at second base over Von Grissom. That would have been to me unthinkable two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Marcelo Zuna has played, he's not in the lineup Monday night, but he's played, I think he played two of the three games at DH in the series versus the Mets. He's starting to hit the ball. He has been hitting the ball, did so all September. I think he played 15 games in the month of September and hit over 300. So that looks like it's going to be decision area for Snicker at the DH spot. Contreras, who, by the way, all-star starter for the National League, Contreras, or Ozuna in the DH spot. I know many of you are screaming right now. Your choice would be Contreras. And I get that. Like, I definitely understand that. I think Marcelo Zuna has to be on the roster. He has to be on the roster, but I don't know that Snicker's going to go with Contreras at the DH for a majority of the time in the playoffs or in this final series against the Marlins. I don't know why. I don't know what like, underlying metrics he likes, but maybe it has something to do with the fact that if Contreras is in the lineup at DH you don't really have a backup catcher anymore behind Travis Dargo, go, 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 who's also killing the ball. You don't have a catcher if you put Contreras in the lineup. You can't pinch run for Darno in the seventh inning, eighth inning, if Contreras is already in the lineup at DH. Well, you could. You can move things around, but it's not as easy. So when Ozuna's the DH, you have that really good right-handed bat off the bench in Contreras but you also have the ability to remove Darno from the game for something like a pinch runner, which again, you're not using pinch runners in regular season too often, like that's not a concern, but in the playoffs in a short series, yeah, you might. Maybe that's something. Um, other than that, I don't know that the roster is really, like there's a lot of questions about it. Hopefully, Strider comes back. If Strider doesn't come back, you're going to start Max Freed game one. I think we're all on board with that right now. 
Kyle Wright, certainly number two. Chuck Morton, number three, the $20 million man. Which, by the way, if the Braves don't re-sign Dansby Swanson and they just gave Chuck Morton $20 million, and then they cite money as the reason why, going to be a lot of pissed-off Braves fans, especially the females. The ladies love Dansby. That's across the whole Southeast. The ladies love Dansby. And I've been told I look like Dansby from very smart people with great eyesight. So, if so facto, the ladies love me. That's the transitive property. If they don't re-sign Dansby and they gave Chuck Morton $20 million, there's going to be some pissed off people, myself included. Because that's roughly what Dansby's going to get in the open market, I would think. 20 a year? Over five years? Six years? Maybe the Braves could get him for something like 18, but that's something to watch. I was surprised that the Braves did that with Morton, even though it's a one-year deal, which Anthopolis loves one-year deals. I don't know that I would have done that right now. Couldn't you have done that two months from now? If you loved Chuck Morton so much? Couldn't you have done that after Dansby, maybe? I don't know. Something to think about. Um, if Chuck Morton goes game three and the series is extended beyond that, which it would be if it wasn't a sweep, then you'd have to start thinking about, and this is assuming they don't have Strider. If they have Strider, he goes game three, I think. Because you still have Freed and Wright, and then you have three extra days of Strider rest built into that. Because the Braves will play Tuesday, Wednesday, the 11th and 12th, off day on the 13th, and then they'll play the 14th and 15th. So I think you would go without Strider, Freed, Wright, Morton. Then you'd have to decide between Freed on short rest or, or maybe Bryce Elder. Maybe a guy like Bryce Elder, maybe a guy like Jake Odorizzi if he's on the roster, maybe even a guy like Kyle Muller with Bryce Elder coming behind him, something like that. Those are the concerns, I think, the, the roster and who gets the 25th and 26th spot. It is important, I think, now to note quickly, and, and, and we'll move on. It's important now to note that whatever the Braves do for the NLDS, again, starting October 11th, a week from Tuesday. Whatever they do roster-wise for that series doesn't have to remain the same for the NLCS. In fact, in all likelihood, it won't. Depending on how things shake out, you could see Ozzy Albies come back for the NLCS against presumably the Dodgers or the Mets. Um, if the Braves get Albies back, or if they can't get Strider back for the NLDS, I would assume, I know Strider's coming back at least by the NLCS. Albies, if they make it there to the NLCS, could come back. And then again, after the NLCS, you would be able to reshuffle again for the World Series. And so each series, each roster might be different um, based on who's available and also based on who you're playing. I don't, know that you, I don't know that you do something different if you face the Cardinals or if you face the Phillies. I'm just trying to think you know, off, off the top right now, like what, what do, would the Cardinals do differently than the Phillies to warrant you carrying an extra pitcher or an extra hitter? They're not different enough, and, and neither one of them really have that DeGrom, Scherzer, Freed, type of ace that you're scared of at the top. So I, I, th I don't know that that's going to be a huge decision. I'm curious, so I wonder who Braves fans would rather see, Cardinals or Phillies? For me, it's no doubt it's the Phillies. Bring me the Phillies over the Cardinals 12 months out of the year. In October, for sure bring me the Phillies over the Cardinals because all I can think about is that infield fly. It's the only thing I think about. October, Braves, Cardinals, that's the infield fly. That's it. I don't even know, remember the score of that game, what inning that happened in. That was the only play of the whole season. So I'm terrified of something like that happening again. It is a little like Georgia, this feeling as a Braves fan heading into the playoffs. Since they did it last year, it does feel like a weight is sort of lifted off of them. 
And like, okay, we've seen it before. They can win the World Series. You know, they can overcome obstacles to win a World Series. It doesn't have to be like a famous choke job. Uh, doesn't have to be Mike Fultonevich on the mound giving up a thousand runs in the first inning. Also against the Cardinals, by the way. Damn, man. Give me the Phillies. I don't want to see the Cardinals. I'm talking myself out of this. I like the Cardinals a lot. They scare me. So go Phillies for sure. Um, I, I think the Braves, in, in this order, you would hope to see Padres, Phillies, and all this isn't possible bracket-wise, but in terms of NL playoff teams, you would, the Dodgers are number one, right? Let's put the Braves number two. Cardinals three. Would you put the Cardinals over the Mets? I don't think I would, actually. Mets three. Cardinals four. Phillies five. Padres six? In other words, the team you want to play the least is the Dodgers. I think we all know that. Um, but, you know, the Dodgers haven't played an important game uh, since April, May, since the Braves were six games under 500. Crazy to think about how sustained their, their run has been. When the Braves have, um, well, this is a crazy stat. The Braves were 23 and 27 at one point through 50 games. That's the worst 50 game record for any 100 win team in Major League Baseball history. 23 and 27 through 50 games, and they close with 100 wins, still three games to play. Pretty crazy. So if you're telling me right now, National League, Dodgers are the only team better than the Braves, Braves can still beat them. I think the Dodgers were better than the Braves last year, and the Braves still beat them. So clearly they can, but Dodger, and I would put, in the American League, I'd put the Astros over the Braves, but I would no longer put the Yankees over the Braves. And I don't really want to talk about the American League because a lot of work to be done before the Braves face the American League. I would like to say quickly, is Aaron Judge ever going to break the home run record? which is not actually the home run record. It's like the sixth most home runs in a single season of all time. You would think it's the most important event in baseball history since they cut in to every major sporting event for his at-bats, in which he always walks. He never actually hits a home run in any of these cut-ins. This guy has just prolonged this streak along with Roger Maris Jr. tweeting his ass off the whole time. He's had one home run in the last, like, 30 days. Get it over with already, man. Also, Barry Bonds had 73 in a season. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, those people existed, man. They happened. Yeah, sure, they had steroids, but how awesome were steroids looking back? How sweet was that? How sweet was that? Dudes were just hitting, everyone was hitting 50 home runs. Brett Boone comes into Atlanta and hits 50 home runs. It was sweet, man. Steroids were sweet. And for people too young to remember that era of baseball, you missed out, man. You missed out. Bud Selig, he gave, and then he took it away. I don't care about 62 home runs. It's the American League record. Junior circuit record. Nobody cares, man. All right, uh, let's close up with high school football. But first, a word from uh, a couple of our other segment sponsors, Sweet Potatoes Kitchen, the number one place to get lunch on the south side. Sweet Potatoes Kitchen, owner Steve Magulius, 531 Stevenson Avenue, um, Monday through Saturday. They are open. Um, or Monday is 11 to 3 p.m., so lunch only. And then Tuesday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Closed on Sundays. 912-352-3434. 912-352-3434. If you want to call Sweet Potatoes, if you want to call ahead of time, um, go in there. They will take great care of you. 
I promise you, if you go in there, you will come out full and happy. And really, what else is there besides being full and happy? That's two pretty solid things that Sweet Potatoes delivers six days a week, 365 days a year. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if they're open 365 days a year. They might be. 531 Stevenson Avenue, Sweet Potatoes Kitchen. Find them on Facebook and Instagram as well. Tell them the Hot Grits podcast sent you. Get the sweet tea. Top five sweet tea. Top five sweet tea. I'm declaring that now. Sweet Potatoes Kitchen. Um, all right, before we close up, this has, been, this has been fun. I'm not used to having cameras in front of me when I record this. Um, not used to not being able to stop and think about what I'm going to say for half an hour. I think it's been uh, better for me. It doesn't take me three hours to record 40 minutes. But um, maybe I'll do this again. Maybe I'll do this again sometime. Um, I want to get to high school football before we end. And high school football segment always brought to you by PrepSportsReport.com. That's run by Carl Damasi and Elmo Weeks. Uh, free website for local sports and high school sports. So youth sports all the way through high school sports and even college athletes that are from the Savannah area. All those kinds of stories. I do a lot of writing for PrepSportsReport.com. Um, you never have to subscribe. You never have to sign up. No trial offers. No pop-up ads. None of that. If you want to know who won the football games every Friday night, if you want to know who did what, Prep Sports Report. Dot com is your spot, and they're a sponsor here on the Hot Crits Podcast, and they sponsor the high school football segment. My Savannah Six, if I had a drum roll, I'd be doing it right now. Thank you, Producer Larry. I need an intern just to do drum rolls, just to stand here and do drum rolls when I say. Uh, top six teams in the Savannah area. Let's add some intrigue to it and start from six. Evingham County. Six, Richmond Hill five, New Hampstead four, Savannah Christian three, BC two, Calvary Day number one. I'll repeat this point for the viewers of this because I don't know that a lot of the viewers that are watching the video version have listened to previous episodes of Hot Grits. Maybe have. Uh, you can subscribe, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you get podcasts. BC and Calvary are once again the two best teams in the city, and once again, we will go a full season without those two teams playing each other. BC can go to Miami, they can go to Jacksonville, they can go to Timbuktu, they can go to Disney World, but Calvary and BC can't manage to travel the mile and a half that separates them to play each other. Never before in the program's history have the two teams met in a regular season game, BC and Calvary. Now, if you're a BC person, if you're a BC guy, if you're one of the 400, you would say Calvary's scared to play us. And if you're Calvary, if you're one of the Cavaliers, you would say, BC won't schedule us. We've tried. No one actually knows what's what. The fact is that these coaches, Danny, Brent, Mark Stroud, they know how to schedule games. They could do it if they wanted to, but neither team sees the benefit in doing it. So they don't. So we're the ones that pay the price. We don't get to see who the best team is because they don't play each other. So I'm going to rank Calvary number one. They're number three in the state in class 3A heading into this week. Um, and BC number six, class 4A. Thursday night, 7 p.m. at Memorial Stadium, Burke County undefeated number five ranked team in the state comes to Benedictine to play BC. This is the fifth time they've met all time. It's the fourth time in which both teams have been ranked in the top 10. So if you're not doing anything Thursday night, hopefully you won't be watching the Braves because they will be off. I would go to Memorial Stadium. If there's a game you want to go to this season, you get a chance to watch Benedictine and their future Power 5 quarterback, Luke Cromenhawk. You also get a chance to see a really good Burt County team and you get to see what BC can do against a ranked team from the state of Georgia. The last time they played a ranked team in the state of Georgia was Ware County. They lost that game, BC did. Now, it's on, that was on the road against Ware County, who is now number one in the state, um, in, in class 5A, mind you. So this, to me, is, is BC's truest test of the year. I think Ware County was always better than BC. Um, 
certainly at the beginning of the year when BC played Chris Columbus out of Miami, they got waxed for a second year in a row, by the way, in that game. That game was never a true test because we knew Chris Columbus was going to win that game. Burt County is the real deal, but BC can beat them. And so this is a nice chance for fans to see that game, 7 p.m. Thursday, Memorial Stadium. Uh, Friday, one game to highlight. Savannah Christian at Johnson. I say at Johnson. It's at Island Stadium. 7.30 kickoff there. That is a big one in Region 3, 3A. Savannah Christian's now 2-1 in Region 5-1 overall. Their only loss has come to number three, Calvary. Uh, Johnson's won four games in a row. They're 2-0 in the region. They're tied for first place. Johnson football tied for first place, and it's October, and Johnson football's tied for first place. That's crazy to think about. It's public school. It's their chance to, to finally win one of these big games against a private school, which for all the talk about how far the public schools have come, you can see in my Savannah 6, which is really official, really important, and a super serious poll, guys, that the top three teams in the Savannah area are still private school teams. As much as we want to think that the public schools have closed the gap, they haven't yet. Johnson can go, can do a lot for the image of public schools and public school football in the city if they can beat a team like Savannah Christian. All that being said, I like the Raiders in that game, but that might be one that I end up going to. That's Island Stadium, 7.30 Friday night. All right, I think that's it. I think that's it for Hot Crits Podcast, episode 135. Thank you for watching. Um, again, if you're listening to this only, you can go watch this. You can uh, see my beautiful mug on the Coach's Corner Facebook page on Hot Crits Podcast Facebook page. So check that out if you'd like. And if you're watching this, live or otherwise, you can go back and listen to any of the previous 134 Hot Grits Podcast episodes on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever, literally wherever you get podcasts. And for some of the older folk out there, podcasts are really easy. They're free. And I promise you, you have it on your phone. I know you don't know how to do it, but you might have a grandson, granddaughter. They can show you how. It's real easy. You click the button, and then every Tuesday when these episodes come out, it'll pop up right there on your phone. You just tap it, and you listen away. It's real easy. Thank you to everyone. Thank you to Producer Lawrence. Thank you to Coach's Corner for having me today. And until episode 136, stay safe. Wash your hands, you filthy animals.
Savannah's premier indoor baseball training facility, SBPA is owned and operated by Ross Howard, and together with instructors who have played college and professional baseball, Ross and SBPA offer customized instruction year-round for baseball and softball players, full-length batting cages, pitching mounds, and a state-of-the-art technology to measure improvement are just a few of the highlights over at the Academy. Call Ross at 912-484-5282 and visit the Savannah Baseball Performance Academy on Facebook for programs, teams, camps, and more information about how to take advantage of this great venue. Savannah's only year-round indoor baseball facility, Ross Howard, our guy, give him a call, 912-484-5282. Commercial and residential electrical services that you can trust. Braddy Electric is Savannah's number one electrical services for commercial and residentials since 1970. It's family owned and family operated. Reach them today at 912-233-1561 or 1104 East 35th Street. Braddy Electric, that's two D's, B-R-A-D-D-Y. Five stars on Yelp, five stars on Google reviews, and Savannah's number one electrical servicer since 1970. Call them today, 912-233-1561. 